I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. New address requires two forms of proof. A utility bill or a... Oh, oh, hi. Welcome to the Leaves of Glen Mansion. Oh, you caught me uh, just going over the requirements to finally get my stupid enhanced driver's license uh, for the state of Minnesota. Uh, and I have to go back. And I had to make a second appointment, which took two months to finally get in. And when I got there, they told me, no. What you brought wasn't good enough. Uh, you'll have to set up another appointment. So now I'm sitting here as if I'm trying to plan a corporate takeover just to get a stupid license. So I don't know. I could buy beer again. I mean, what am I really going to do with this? Well, I read the hottest public domain books and short stories. Uh, this week, we're going to continue to read Chapter 21 of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. It's the eighth novel, which was published as a serial uh, in magazines in 1849 through 1850, and then later as a book in 1850. It is widely considered his most popular work. Uh, it's born the 7th of February, 1812. That's a long time ago. Then he died the 9th of June, 1870. Equally a long time ago. You want to hear some fun facts? Sure, everyone does. He started working at a very young age. Uh, when Charles Dickens turned 12, he left to work in a factory. When, period. This was after his father was sent to prison. Uh, I think Discover Walks is one of those websites where they poorly translate from some other language. Uh, one of his very first jobs was to paste labels on pots of bootblacking in a factory by Charing Cross Station in London. As you can imagine, the conditions at this factory were not favorable, especially for a 12-year-old. Dickens used to earn six shillings a week, and he would later paint a picture of his experience through his writing. Well, with that, let's recap in the previous chapter. David agrees to visit Steerforth's home in Highgate and meet his widowed mother. As they make their way there, uh, Steerforth explains that he's attending Oxford, but doesn't plan to get a degree because that's for losers. Uh, when they arrive at his house, they meet Mrs. Steerforth, who thinks everything about her son is wonderful because she just dodes on him as a, a perfect little uh, child king has pictures of him around his neck, multiple pictures. Uh, and then there's Miss Rosa Dartle, uh, her companion. Miss Rosa Dartle's a uh, strange way of speaking and a scar on her face from a childhood accident, which, which involves Steerforth. So he's just been a jerk since birth. And that scar can be seen in his bedroom, the guest bedroom that he stays at, which just hangs over his bed and stares at him. Mrs. Steerforth explains that she sent her son to Salem House because then he'd be the highest-ranking student and be a special little boy. Uh, and Steerforth proposes that he accompany David to Yarmouth to meet the people there because he thinks it'll be funny to make fun of poor people. 
So, ah, crap. I got a lot of time left for the grandfather clock. Why did I do that so fast? I should have read it slower. What have I been up to? Well, the DMV. I just want to have a real license again. Just so I can hold it up and show people that I'm a, a real uh, citizen of the state that I live in. But instead, I got to keep uh, going back and forth. I have to do the loser thing uh, if I ever want to buy beer when I go over to a friend's house. And then they say, oh, can I see your license? And they see all the holes in it because they stamped it weird because it's not like valid anymore. It's expired. And they go, hey, you got, you got paperwork. And then like a old, gross man at the liquor store, I have to unfold the two sheets of paper, which takes forever when you're hands are dry in the wintertime, and then I show it to them, and they say, eh, yeah, okay, all right, all right. I might as well have gotten there on a 10-speed, or I walk there and plan to walk back with my case of beer for me and my friend, uh, you know, with one beer missing, that kind of thing. It, it just makes you feel lower. I want to have a real driver's license, like a real man. Oh, thank God. I had nothing else to say after that. Well, with that, let's dive into Chapter 21 and and learn about what uh, Sweet David's been up to. Chapter 21, Little Emily. Oh, I'm glad to see this has come full circle. There was a servant in that house, a man who, I understood, was usually with Steerforth and had come into his service at the university, who was, in appearance, a pattern of respectability. I believe there never existed in his station a more respectable-looking man. He was tactured, oh, soft-footed, very quiet in his manner, deferential, eh, eh, observant, always at hand when wanted and never near when not wanted. But his great claim to consideration was his respectability. He had not a uh, eh, eh, pliant face. He had rather a, a stiff neck, eh, rather a, a tight, smooth head <laughs> with short hair clinging to it at the sides. A soft way of speaking with a particular habit of whispering the letter S so distinctly that he seemed to use it uh, oftener than any other man. But every peculiarity that he had made him more respectable. If his nose had been upside down, what? He would have made that respectable. Okay. He surrounded himself with an atmosphere of respectability. We get it. And he walked secure in it. It would not have been next to impossible to suspect him of anything wrong. He was so thoroughly respectable. Oh, my God, we get it. Nobody could have thought of putting him in a livery. He was so highly uh, respectable. Oh, God. To have imposed any derogatory work upon him would have been to inflict a wanton insult on the feelings of a most respectable man. I'm dying right now. He won't stop. And of this, I noticed the woman's servants in the household were so intuitively conscious that they always did such work themselves, and generally while he read the paper by the pantry fire. Such a self-contained man I never saw. But in that quality, as in every other he possessed, he only seemed to be more respectable. 
period. I am dying right now. He won't stop talking about it. Even the fact that no one knew his Christian name seemed to form a part of his respectability. Ugh. My skin's crawling. He won't stop saying the word respectable. Nothing could be objected against his surname, Litmer, by which he was known. Peter might have been hanged or Tom transported, but Litmer was perfectly respectable. <laughs> God damn it! It was occasioned, I suppose, by the reverend nature of respectability in the abstract that I felt particularly young. I really want to get past this part of the story. In this man's presence... How old he was himself, I could not guess, because his head is too tight and smooth. And that again went to his credit on the same score. For in the calmness uh, of respectability, he might have numbered 50 years as well as 30. Litmer was in my room in the morning before I was up to bring me that reproachful shaving water and to put out my clothes. When I undrew the curtains and looked out of bed, I saw him in an equable temperature of respectability. Ugh, I want this to be done, unaffected by the east wind of January, and not even breathing frostily, standing my boots right and left in the first dancing position and, and blowing specks of dust off my coat as he laid it down like a, like a, like a baby. I gave him good morning, and he asked, uh, asked him uh, what o'clock it was. He took out his pocket, uh, the most respectable uh, hunting watch I ever saw, and preventing the spring uh, with his thumb from opening far, looked in at the face as if it were consulting an, an oracular oyster, shut it up again and said, if I pleased, it was half past eight. Mr. Steerforth will be glad to hear how you have rested, sir. Thank you, said I. Very well, indeed. Is, is Mr. Steerforth quite well? Oh, thank you, sir. Mr. Steerforth is tolerably well. Another of his characteristics. Uh, no use of superlative. Uh, a cool, calm medium, always. Is there anything more I could have the honor of uh, doing for you, sir? The warning bell will ring at nine. The family take breakfast at uh, half past nine. Yeah, nothing, thank you. I thank you, sir, if you please. And with that, and with the little inclination of his head, his tight, tight, shiny head, when he passed the bedside as an apology for correcting me, he went out, shutting the door as delicately as if I had fallen into a, a sweet sleep on which my life depended. Every morning we held exactly this conversation. Never any more, never any less, and yet, invariably, however far I might have been lifted out of myself overnight, the advance towards mature years of my Steerforth's companionship, of Mrs. Steerforth's confidence, or Mrs. Dartle's conversations, in the presence of the most respectable man, I became, uh, as our smaller poets sing, quote, a boy again, period. Now that's a big, long paragraph. He got horses for us, and Steerforth, who knew everything, gave me lessons in riding. Ah, he provided foils for us, and Steerforth gave me lessons in fencing, uh, gloves, and I began on the same to master to improve in boxing. 
It gave me no manner of concern that Steerforth should find me a novice in these sciences, but I never could bear to show my want of skill before the respectable Litmer. I had no reason to believe that Litmer understood such arts himself. He, he never led me to suppose anything of the kind uh, by so much as the vibration of uh, one of his respectable eyelashes. I'm dying. Yet whenever he was by, while we were practicing, I felt myself the greenest and most inexperienced of mortals. Yeah, I'm particular about this man, because he made a particular effect on me at that time, and because of what took place thereafter. Yeah, the week passed away in a most delightful manner. It, it passed rapidly, as it may be supposed, to one entranced as I was, and it gave me so many occasions for knowing Steerforth better and admiring him more in a thousand respects, that it is as close as I seem to have been with him for a much longer time. A dashing way he had of treating me eh, like a plaything. Well, yeah, he keeps calling you Daisy, which is kind of emasculating. It's not really a friendship when someone just does that. Uh, was more agreeable to me than any behavior he could have adopted. It reminded me of our old acquaintance. It seemed the natural sequel of it, and it showed me that he was unchanged. It relieved me of any uneasiness I might have felt in comparing my merits with his and of measuring my claims upon his friendship by any equal standard. Above all, I was familiar, unrestrained, affectionate demeanor that he used towards no one else. As he had treated me at school differently from all the rest, I joyfully believed that he treated me in life unlike any other friend he had. Well, he probably doesn't have any other friends. They all probably hate him because he's a huge jerk. I believe that I was nearer to his heart than any other friend, and that my own heart warmed with attachment to him. He made up his mind to go with me to the country, and the day he arrived for our departure, he had been doubtful at first whether to take Litmer or, or not, but decided to leave him at home. Well, he's a actual human being. He's just treating him like luggage. The respectable creature, uh, satisfied with his lot wherever it was, arranged at our portmanux. You know what? I can't actually look this up, how to pronounce it or what it means, because uh, my Kindle has lost access to the internet. So when I say portmanteau, then that's just what it's going to be. On the little carriage that was to take us into London as if they were intended to defy the shocks of ages and received my modesty, modestly preferred donation with a perfect tranquility. We bade adieu to Miss Steerforth and Miss Dartle with many thanks on my part and much kindness on the devoted mothers. The last thing I saw was Litmer's unruffled eye, fraught, as I fancied, with the silent conviction that I was very young indeed. What I felt in returning so auspiciously to the old familiar places I shall not endeavor to describe, well, we went down by the mail, and I was so concerned, I recollect, even for the honor of Yarmouth, that when Steerforth said, as he drove through the dark streets to the inn, that as well as he could make out, it was a good, eh, queer, out-of-the-way kind of hole, and I was highly pleased. We went to bed on our arrival, I observed a pair of dirty shoes and gaiters in connection with my old friend, the Dolphin, as we passed that door, and, uh, and breakfasted late in the morning. Steerforth, who was in great spirits, had been strolling about the beach before I was up, and had made an acquaintance, he said, with half the boatmen in the place. Moreover, 
He had seen in the distance what he was sure must be the identical house of Mr. Peggotty, with smoke coming out of the chimney. It had a, a great mind, he told me, to walk in and swear he was myself grown out of knowledge. When do you uh, propose to introduce me there, Daisy? He said, I am at your disposal. Uh, make your own arrangements. Why, uh... I was thinking that this evening would be a good time, uh, steer forth, where they are all sitting around the fire. And I should like to see, uh, when it's snuck. Oh, it's such a curious place. So, uh, be it, returned steer forth this evening. I shall not give them any notice that we are here, you know, said I, delighted. We must take them by surprise. That's an annoying thing to do. Oh, of course. Oh, it's no fun. Uh, said Steerforth, unless we take them by surprise. Uh, let, let, let us see the natives in their aboriginal condition. Okay. Rich jerk. Though they are that sort of people that you mentioned, I returned. Ah, uh, what? You recollect my skirmishes with Rosa, do you? He exclaimed with a quick look. It can confound the girl. I am half afraid of her. She's like a, like a, like a goblin to me. But never mind her. Now, what are you, what are you gonna do? You're going to see your nurse, I suppose? Why, yes, I said. I must see Peggotty first of all. Well, replied Steerforth, looking at his watch, suppose I deliver you up to be cried over for a couple of hours. Is, is, that, is that long enough? I answered, nah, laughing, <laughs> that I thought we might get through it in that time but that he must come also, for he would find that his renown had preceded him, and that he was almost as a great personage as I was. Oh, I'll come anywhere you like, said Steerforth, or do anything you like. Tell me where to come to, and in two hours I'll produce myself in any state you please, sentimental or uh, comical. I gave him a minute's directions for finding the residence of Mr. Barkus, a carrier to Blunderstone and elsewhere, and on this understanding went out alone. There was a, a sharp, bracing air. Uh, the ground was dry. The sea was crisp and clear. The sun was diffusing abundance of, of, of light, if not much warmth, and everything was fresh and lively. I, I was so fresh and lively myself in the pleasure of being there that I could not have stopped the people in the streets and shaken hands with them. The streets look small, of course. The streets that we have only seen as children always do, I believe. And, and then we go back to them. But I'd uh, forgotten nothing in them and found nothing changed until I came to Mr. Omer's shop Omer and Joram was now written up where Omer used to be. Oh, but in the description, draper, tailor, haberdasher, funeral furniture, etc. It remained as it was. My footsteps seemed to tend so naturally to the shop door after I had read these words from over that way that I, I went across the road and looked in. There was a, a, a pretty woman at the back of the shop. Dancing, a little, a little child in her arms, while another little fellow uh, clung to her apron. I had no uh, difficulty of recognizing either Minnie or Minnie's children. The, uh, the, the, the glass door, the parlor was not open, but in the workshop across the yard, I could faintly hear the old tune playing, as if it had never left off. Is Mr. Uh, uh, Omer at home? said I, entering. 
I should like to see him uh, for a moment if he is. Oh, yes, sir, he is home, said Benny. The weather doesn't suit his asthma out of doors. Uh, Joe, uh, call your grandfather. Now the little fellow who was holding her apron gave such a, a lusty shout that the sound of it made him bashful, and he buried his face in her skirts. And, and to her great admiration, I heard a heavy puffing and blowing coming towards us, and soon Mr. Omer, uh, shorter-winded than of yore, uh, but not much older-looking, stood before me. Servant, sir, said Mr. Omer. Well, what can I do for you? You can shake hands with me, Mr. Omer, if you please, said I, putting out my own. You were very good-natured to me once, when I am afraid I didn't show what I thought so. Verb. Was I, though, returned the old man. Well, I'm glad to hear it, but I remember when. Are you sure it was me? Quite. I think my memory has got short of my breath, said Mr. Omer, looking at me and shaking his head, for I don't remember you. And don't you remember your coming to the coach to meet me and having my breakfast here and our riding out to Blunderstone together? You and I, Mr. Joram, and uh, Mr. Joram, who, uh, who was it? Was it her husband then? Why, Lord bless my soul, exclaimed Mr. Omer, after being thrown by surprise into a fit of coughing. Uh, you don't say so. Many, my dear, you recollect... Dear me, yes, the party was a lady, I think. My mother, I rejoined. To dash be dash sure, said Mr. Omer, touching his waistcoat with his forefinger. What? And there was a little child, too. There were two parties. The little party was being laid along with the other party. Over at Blunderstone it was, of course. Oh, dear me, and how have you been since? Oh, very well, I thanked him, as I hoped he had been, too. Oh, nothing to grumble at, <laughs> you know, said Mr. Omer. I find my breath gets short, but it seldom gets longer as a man gets older. That's not necessarily true. I think you're in poor health. I take it as it comes and make the most of it. That's the best way, uh, ain't it? Mr. Omer, I coughed again. In consequence of laughing, Ed was assisted out of it as fit by his daughter, who now stood close beside us, dancing her smallest child on the counter. Dear me, said Mr. Omer, yes, to be sure, two parties. Why, in the very ride, if you'll believe me, the day was named for my Minnie to marry Joram. Uh, do name it, sir, says Joram. Yes, do, father, says Minnie. And now he's come into the business. And look here, ah, the youngest. Minnie laughed and stroked her banded hair upon her temples as her father put one of his fat fingers into the hand of the child. She was dancing on the counter. Two parties, of course, said Mr. Omer, nodding his head retrospectively. Exactly so. And, and Joram's at work at this minute, on a gray one with silver nails. Uh, not this measurement. Uh, the measurement of the dancing uh, child upon the counter by a good two inches. Will you take something? Most of that conversation made no sense to me. I thanked him, but declined. Ah, let me see, said Mr. Omer. Barkus, the carrier's wife, Peggotty, uh, the boatman's sister, she had something to do with your family, eh? And she was in service there, sure. My answering in the affirmative gave him great satisfaction. I believe my breath will get long next. My memory is getting so much so, said Mr. Omer. Well, sir, we've got a young relation of hers here under articles to us. 
uh, that has as elegant a taste in the dressmaking business, I assure you. I don't believe there's a, a duchess in England that can touch her. Uh, now, little Emily, said I involuntarily. Emily's her name, said Mr. Omer. And she's little too, but if you'll believe me, she has such a face of her own uh, that half the women in this town are mad against her. "'Nonsense, father!' cried many. "'Oh, my dear,' said Mr. Omer, "'I don't say it's the case with you,' winking at me, "'but I say that half the women in Yarmouth "'Ah!' <laughs> "'That's actually there. "'A-H!' exclamation point. "'And in a five-mile round are mad against this girl. "'Then she should have kept to her own station in life, father,' said Minnie, "'and not have uh, given them any hold to talk about her, "'and then they couldn't have done it. "'Couldn't have done it, my dear,' retorted Mr. Omer. "'Couldn't have done it!' <laughs> exclamation point. "'Is that your knowledge of life? "'What is there that any woman couldn't do that she shouldn't do, "'especially on the subject of another woman's good looks?' "'I really thought it was all over with Mr. Omer. "'After he had uttered this libelous pleasantry, he, "'he coughed to that extent, and his breath eluded "'all his attempts to recover it with obstinacy "'that I fully expected to see his, his head go down behind the counter "'and his little black breeches uh, "'with the rusty little bunches of ribbons at the knees "'come quivering up in a lasted effectual struggle. "'At length, however, he got better, "'though he still pant panted hard and uh, was so exhausted.' that he was obliged to sit on the stool of the uh, shop desk. Yeah, you see, he said, wiping his head and breathing with difficulty, uh, she hasn't taken much to any companions here. She hasn't taken kindly to any particular acquaintances or friends. Oh, she's holding herself out for the big D. Oh, I meant... David. Well, that didn't come off well. Not to mention sweethearts. In consequence, an ill-natured story got about that uh, Emily wanted to be a lady. Now, my opinion is that it came into circulation principally on account of her sometimes saying, eh, at school, as if she, she was a lady, she would like to do so-and-so for her uncle. Hey, don't you see, Dash, and by him such-and-such such fine things. I assure you, Mr. Omer, she has said so to me, I returned eagerly, when we were both uh, children. Mr. Omer nodded his head and rubbed his chin. Just so. Then out of a very little, he could dress herself, you see, better than most others, uh, could out of a deal, and, and that uh, made things unpleasant. Moreover, she was rather what might be called wayward. Oh, I'll go so far as to say uh, what I should call wayward myself, said Mr. Omer. Uh, didn't know her own mind quite, a, a little spoiled, and couldn't at first exactly bind herself down. No more uh, than that was ever said against her. Uh, Minnie? No, father, said Mrs. Joram. Uh, that's the worst, I believe. So when she got a situation, said Mr. Omer, to keep a, a facetious, facetious ugh, old lady company, they didn't very well agree, and she didn't stop. At last, she came here, apprentice for three years. Uh, nearly two of them were over, and she has been as good a girl as ever was. Worth with any six, Minnie? Is, is she worth any six now? Yes, father, replied Minnie. Never say I detracted from her. Very good, said Mr. Omer. That's right. And so, young gentleman, he added after a few moments for the rubbing of his chin, that you may not consider me long-winded as well as short-breathed. I believe that's all about it. 
As they had spoken in a subdued tone while speaking of Emily, I had no doubt that she was near. On my asking now, if that were not so, Mr. Omers nodded, yes, and nodded toward the door of the parlor. My hurried inquiry, if I might peep in, was answered with a, a, a free permission, and looking through the glass, I saw her sitting at her work. I saw her a most beautiful creature, with the cloudless blue eyes that had looked into my childish heart, turned laughingly upon another child of Minnie's who was playing near her, with enough of willfulness in her bright face to justify that I had heard, with much of the uh, old capricious coyness lurking in it, but with nothing in her pretty looks, I am sure, but what was meant for goodness and for happiness, and what was on a, a good and happy course." The tune across the yard that seemed as if it had never left off, alas, exclamation point, was the tune that never does leave off, was beating softly all the while. Wouldn't you like to step in, said Mr. Omer, eh, and speak to her? Walk in and speak to her, sir. Make yourself at home. Well, I was too bashful to do so then, and I was afraid of confusing her, and I was uh, no less afraid of confusing myself. But I informed myself of the hour at which she left of an evening in order that our visit might be timed accordingly and leave, uh, take leave of Mr. Omer and his pretty daughter and her little children uh, went away to my dear old Peggy's. Here she was in the tilted kitchen, Cooking dinner! Exclamation point. The moment I knocked at the door, ah, she opened it and asked me what I pleased to want. And I looked at her with a smile. And she gave me a, a no smile in return. And I had never ceased to write to her, but it must have been uh, seven years since we'd met. Is Mr. Uh, uh, Barkis home, ma'am? I said, feigning to speak roughly to her. Uh, he's at home, sir, returned Peggy. He's in a he's bad a bed with the rheumatics. Uh, don't he go over to Blunderstone now? I asked. Uh, when he's well, he do, she answered. Uh, do, do you ever go over there, Miss Barkis? Uh, she looked at me more attentively, and I noticed a quick movement of her hands towards each other, because I want to ask a question about a house there uh, that they call the, what is it, uh, the Rookery, said I. Well, she took a step backward and put out her hands in an undecided, frightened way as if to, to keep me off. Peggy, I cried to her. She cried, My darling boy! And we both burst into tears and were locked in one another's arms. What extravagances she committed. What laughing and crying over me. What pride she showed with joy. What sorrow that she, whose pride and joy I might have bed and, and never hold me in a fond embrace. I have not the heart to tell. I was troubled with no misgiving that it was young in me to respond to her emotions. I had never laughed and cried in all my life, I dare say, not even, not even to her, more freely than I did in that morning. Barkis will be so glad, said Peggy, wiping her eyes with her apron, that it'll do him more good than pints of liniment. May I go and tell him you're here? Will you come up and see him, my dear? Well, of course I would, but Peggy would not get out of the room as easily as she meant to, for as often as she got to the door and looked round at me, she came back again to have another, another laugh and a, another cry upon my shoulder. 
That's dramatic. At last, to make the matter easier, I went upstairs with her, and having waited outside for a minute while she was at a word of preparation to Mr. Barkis, presented myself before that invalid. Oh, well, that's not a nice thing to say. He received me with absolute enthusiasm. Now, he was too romantic to be shaking hands with me, but he begged me to shake the, the, the tassel on the, on, the, on the top of his nightcap, which I did most cordially. That's weird. <laughs> when I sat down by the side of the bed, he said that it did him a world of good to feel as if he were driving me on the Blunderstone Road again, as he lay in bed face upward and so covered, with that exception that he seemed to be nothing but a, eh, a face, like a conventional cherubim, cherubim. See, I can't look this stuff up. I can't help you people. Now I'm just going to say everything incorrectly. He looked at the queerest object I ever beheld. Uh, what name was it? As I rode up in the cart, sir, said Mr. Barkus with a slow, romantic smile. Well, that's sad. Ah, Mr. Barkus, we had some grave talks about that matter, hadn't we? I was willing a long time, sir, said Mr. Barkus. A long time, said I, and I don't regret it, said Mr. Barkus. Dear. Do you remember what you told me once about her making all the apple pastries and doing all the cooking? Yes, very well, I returned. It was true, said Mr. Barkus. As turnips is, it was true, said Mr. Barkus, nodding in his nightcap, which is his only means of emphasis. As taxes is, and nothing's truer than them. Well, with that, let's take a little break from the story and why don't you and I, eh, you know, retire up to the master bedroom. Uh, there's silk sheets. You want to have a good time, don't you? You came here to have a good time. Let's go have some, let's have a good time. Let's go up to the master bedroom where I can read to you the latest upcoming books from Penguin Random House's romance series. Ah, there you are, laying in my silken sheets, waiting for me. Hey, you look amazing. So amazing that I would like to capture this moment in the form of a painting. So sit on this stool and, uh, and wear this top hat as I read to you a new upcoming romance novel from Penguin Random House Books, The Duke Undone by Joanna Lowell. Eh, uh, want to hear about it? Sure. An artist stumbles upon a naked duke, and an unlikely love story begins in this captivating Victorian historical romance when Royal Academy painting student Lucy Coover trips over a naked man passed out in an East End alley. She does the decent thing. She covers him up and fetches help. Trouble is, she can't banish his muscular form from her dreams as easily. Compelled to capture every detail, she creates a stunning portrait. Wait, while he's passed out? Uh, but it's forced to sell it uh, when the rent comes due. A painting of a passed-out man? What could be worse than surrendering the very picture of your desire? Meeting the man himself. Anthony Philby, Duke of Weston, is nobody's muse. Upon discovering the scandalous likeness, he was when he was passed out. He springs into action. His infamous family has been torn apart by shame and secrets, and he can't afford more gossip even a whisper may jeopardize his inheritance and his chance at independence. His plan is simple. Burn the painting. 
confront the artist, or, or, or rather, it's simple until he meets Lucy and decides to offer the bewitching young artist a devil's bargain. Uh, he'll help uh, save her foreclosed home if she'll help repair his family's brutal legacy. Through what, the magic of painting? An irresistible passion ignites between them. Uh, but when danger strikes, ooh, Lucy and Anthony must risk everything for a love that might destroy them both. So there you go. It's a story of a woman. Instead of helping a passed out uh, naked man, she takes hours painting him. Uh, just He's sitting there in an alley. Didn't anybody walk by and see her doing this? Well, whatever. The Duke Undone by Joanna Lowell. Uh, comes out April 6th. It's 16 bucks. So if you like non-consensual painting, uh, go get that. Well, with that, I'm not horny anymore, so uh, why don't we go back to the library and dive back into the rest of this chapter. Mr. Barkis turned his eyes upon me as if for my assent to this uh, result of his reflections in bed, and I gave it. Nothing's truer than them, repeated Mr. Barkis. A man as poor as I am finds out that in his mind, when he's laid up, I'm a very poor man, sir. I am sorry to hear it, Mr. Barkis. A very poor man, indeed I am, said Mr. Barkis. Here his right hand came slowly and feebly from under the bedclothes, and with a purposeless, uncertain grasp, took hold of a stick which was loosely tied to the side of his bed. Burp, after some poking about with this instrument, in the course of which his face assumed a variety of distracted expressions, Mr. Barkis poked it against a, against a box, an end of which had been visible to me all the time. Then his face became composed, "'Old clothes,' said Mr. Barkis. "'Oh,' said I. "'I wish it was money, sir,' said Mr. Barkis. "'I uh, wish it was indeed,' said I. "'But it ain't,' said Mr. Barkis, "'opening both his eyes as wide as he possibly could. "'I expressed myself quite sure of that, "'and Mr. Barkis, turning his eyes more gently to his wife, "'said, "'She's the usefulest and best of women. "'C.P. Barkis.' All the praise that anyone can give to C.P. Barkis, she deserves. And more, my dear, you'll get a dinner today for company. Something eh, good to eat and drink, will you? I should have protested against this unnecessary demonstration in my honor, but that I saw Peggotty on the opposite side of the bed extremely anxious, I should not. So I held my peace. I have got a trifle of money somewhere about me, my dear, said Mr. Parkins, but I'm a little tired. If you and Mr. David will leave me for a short nap, I'll try to find it when I wake. Well, we left the room in compliance with his request, and when we got outside the door, uh, Peggy informed me that Mr. Parkins, being now a little nearer than he used to be, always resorted to this same device before producing a single coin from his store, and that he endured unheard of agonies in crawling out of bed alone and taking it from that unlucky box. In effect, we presently heard him uttering suppressed groans of the most uh, dismal nature as this magpie proceeding racked him in every joint, and while Peggotty's eyes were full of compassion for him, 
She said his generous impulse uh, did no good. It was better not to check it, so we groaned on until he got into bed again, suffering. I have no doubt a martyrdom. And then uh, and it called us in, pretending to have just uh, woke up ah, from refreshing sleep and to produce a guinea from under his pillow. His satisfaction, in which happy imposition uh, on us, and in having preserved the impenetrable secret of the box, appeared to be a sufficient comp- compensation. I, I cannot read. Something's happening to my mouth. I think I'm having a stroke. To him for all his tortures. I prepared Peggotty for Steerforth's arrival, and it was not long before he came. I am persuaded she knew no difference between his having been a personal benefactor of hers and a kind friend to me and that she would have uh, received him with the utmost gratitude and devotion in any case. But his easy, spirited good humor, his, uh, his genial manner, ah, oh, his handsome looks, his natural gift of adapting himself to whomsoever he pleased and making direct, uh, when he cared to do it, to the main point of interest in anybody's heart, bound her to him wholly in uh, ooh, five minutes, His manner to me alone would have won her. Burp. But through all these causes combined, I sincerely believe she had a kind of adoration for him before he left the house that night. He stayed there with me uh, to dinner. If I were to say willingly, uh, I should not half express how readily and gaily. Oh, he went into Mr. Barks' room like a light and air, brightening and refreshing as if he was a, a healthy, healthy weather. There was no noise, uh, no effort, no consciousness in anything he did, but in everything an indescribable lightness, a seeming impossibility of doing anything else or or doing anything better, which was so graceful, oh, so natural and agreeable that it overcomes me even now in remembrance. We made uh, Mary in the little parlor where the Book of Martyrs unthumbed since my time was laid out upon the desk as of old, and where I now turned over its terrific pictures, remembering the old sensations they had awakened, but not feeling them. When Peggotty spoke of what she called my room, and of its being ready for me at night, and of her hoping I would occupy it before I could so so much as look at Steerforth, hesitating as he was possessed of the whole case, of course, he said, you'll sleep here, and while we stay, and I shall sleep at the hotel. But to uh, bring you so far, I returned, and to separate uh, seems bad companionship, Steerforth. Why, in the name of heaven, where do you naturally belong, he said. What it seems compared to that, it was settled at once. He maintained all his delightful qualities to the last until we started forth at eight o'clock for Mr. Peggotty's boat. Indeed, they were more and more brightly exhibited as the hours went on, for I thought, even then, and I have no doubt now, that the consciousness of success and his determination to please inspired him with a new delicacy of perception and made it, subtle as it was, more easy to him. If anyone had uh, told me then that all this was a brilliant game, played for the excitement of the moment and for the enjoyment of high spirits, in the thoughtless love of superiority, in a mere wasteful, careless course of winning, what was worthless to him, and next minute thrown away. I say, if anyone had told me such a lie that night, I wonder in what manner of receiving it in my indignation would have found a a vent, probably only an, an increase. 
had that been possible of the romantic feelings of fidelity and friendship with which I walked beside him over the dark wintry sands toward the old boat, the wind singing around us even more mournfully than it had sighed and moaned upon the night when I first darkened Mr. Peggotty's door. This is a, a wild kind of place, Steerforth, is it not? Dismal enough in the dark, he said, and the sea roars as if it were hungry for us. Is that the boat where I see a light yonder? Eh, that's the boat, said I. And it's the same I saw this morning, he returned. I came straight to it by instinct, I suppose. We said no more as we approached the light, but made softly for the door. I laid my hand upon the latch and whispering Searforth to keep close to me, went in. A murmur of voices had been audible on the outside, and at the moment of our entrance, a clapping of hands, at which latter noise I was surprised to see proceeded from the generally disconsolate Mrs. Gummidge. But Mrs. Gummidge was not the only person there who was unusually excited. Mr. Peggotty, his face lighted up with uncommon satisfaction, and laughing with all his might, held his rough arms wide open as if for little Emily to run into them. Ham, with a mixed expression in his face, vibration, exultation, and a lumbering sort of bashfulness uh, that sat upon him very well, held little Emily by the hand, uh, as if he were presenting her to Mr. Peggotty. Little Emily herself, uh, blushing and shy, but delighted with Mr. Peggotty's delight, as her joyous eyes expressed, was stopped by our entrance, for she saw us first, in the very act of springing from ham to nestle in Mr. Peggotty's embrace. Perp, in the first glimpse we had of all, and at the moment of our passing from the dark cold night into the warm light room, this was the way in which they were all employed. Mrs. Gummidge in the background, clapping her hands like a, like a mad woman. The little picture was so instantaneously dissolved by our going in that one might have doubted whether it had ever been. I was in the midst of an astonished family, face to face with uh, Mr. Peggotty, and holding out my hand to him, when Ham shouted, "'Master Davy! It's Master Davy!' exclamation point. In a moment, we were all shaking hands with one another and asking each other how we did and telling one another how glad we were to meet and all talking at once. And Mr. Peggotty was so proud and overjoyed to see us that he, uh, he didn't know what to say or do, but kept over and over again shaking hands with me and then with Steerforth and then, and then with me, burp, and then ruffling his shaggy hair all over his head and, and, and laughing as ah, such glee and, uh, and triumph that it was a, a, a treat to see him. Why, that you two gentlemen, gentlemen growed, should come to here, this roof tonight of all nights of my life, said Mr. Peggotty. It's such a thing as never happened before, and I do rightly believe. Emily, uh, my darling, uh, come here. Come here, my little witch. <laughs> come here, my little witch. I'm going to start calling my daughters that, just to see how they react to it. There's Master Davy's friend, my, my dear. There's the gentleman, as you've heard on, Emily. He comes to see you, along with Master Davy, on the brightest night of your uncle's life has ever was or will be. Man, people shower this kid with prayer. I have literally never had anyone treat me like this. Go on to, to another one, and horror for it. After delivering the speech all in a breath, 
And with extraordinary animation and pleasure, uh, Mr. Peggotty put one of his large hands rapturously on each side of his niece's face and, and kissing it a dozen times, laid it with a gentle pride and love upon his broad chest and, and patted it as if his hand had been a lady's. Then uh, he let it go. And as she ran into the little chamber where I used to sleep, uh, looked round upon us, quite hot and out of breath with his uncommon satisfaction, if you... Two gentlemen, gentlemen grow now, uh, and such gentlemen, said Mr. Peggotty. So there are, so there are, cried Ham. Well said, so there are, Master Davy, bore gentlemen. I'm trying to, it's all broken up weird fake English. Uh, it's all abbreviated and stuff for their, their dialect, and I am just not doing well with it. Gentlemen grow, so there are. If you do, gentlemen, gentlemen, groads, said Mr. Peggotty. I have no idea what conversation is happening here. Don't excuse me for being in a state of mind. Would you understand matters? I'll arx your pardon. Emily, my dear, she knows I'm a going to tell. Here his delight broke out again and has made off. Would you be so good as to look arter her, mother, for a minute? Mrs. Gummidge nodded and disappeared. If this ain't, said Mr. Peggotty, sitting down among us by the fire, the brightest night o' oh, my life. I'm a shellfish, biled too, and more I can't say. This here, little Emily, sir, in a low voice to Steerforth, her, as you see, a blushing here just now. Steerforth only nodded, eh, but with a such a pleased expression of interest and of a participation in Mr. Peggotty's feelings that the latter answered him as if he had spoken. To be sure, said Mr. Peggotty, that's her, and so she is. Thank ye, sir. Ham nodded to me several times as if he would have said so too. This here little Emily of ours, said Mr. Peggotty, has been in our house, uh, what well, I suppose, I'm an ignorant man, but that's my belief, no one but a little bright-eyed creature can be in the house. She uh, ain't my child. I never had one. But I couldn't love her any more. You understand? I couldn't do it. I quite understand, said Steerforth. I know you do, sir, returned Mr. Peggotty. And thank ye again, Massa Davy. He can remember what she was. You may judge for your own self what she is. But neither of you can't fully know what she has been is. <laughs> and will be to my loving art. I am rough, sir. Oh, God, here we go. Rough and ready, said Mr. Peggotty. I am as rough as the sea porcupine. But no one, unless mayhap it's a woman, can know, I think, that our little Emily is to me. Oh, my God, these sentences. It's all just a series of commas, and it's impossible to read this out loud. And betwixt ourselves, sinking his voice lower yet, that woman's name ain't Mrs. Gummidge neither, though she has a world of merits. Mr. Peggotty ruffled his hair again with both hands as a further participation for what he was going to say, and went on with a hand upon each of his knees. There was a certain person, as had knowed our Emily from the time when her father was drowned as had seen her constant. When a babby, when a young gal, when a woman. Not much of a person to look at, he warn't, said Mr. Peggotty. Something, oh, my own build, rough, and a good deal oh, of the sou'wester in him. Weary salt, but, but on the whole, an honest sort of chap, with his art in the right place. I thought I had never seen Ham grin to anything like the extent to which he's grinning at us now. And what does this here blessed tarpaulin go and do, said Mr. Peggotty, with his face one high noon of enjoyment, but he loses that there art of his to our little Emily. He follers her, 
uh, about and makes herself a sordo servant uh, to her. He loses in a great measure his relish for the whittles. Uh, and in a long run, he makes it clear to me, what's amiss, W-O-T-S. Now I could wish myself, you see, that our little Emily wasn't a fair way of being married. Now he's just talking like a normal person. I could see, uh, I could wish to see her at all events. Well, no, back to being weird. Under articles to an honest man, as he had right to defend her, I don't know how long I may live. Nope, back talking normal again. Or how soon I may die. But I know that if I was capsized any night in a gale wind in Yarmouth Roads here, it was to see the town light shining for the last time over the rollers as I couldn't make no head against. I could go down, quieter for thinking. There's a man ashore there, iron true to my little Emily. God bless her. And no wrong can touch my Emily while so be as that man lives. Mr. Peggotty, in simple earnestness, waved his right arm as if he were waving at the, at the town lights for the last time, and then, exchanging a nod with Ham, whose eye he caught, proceeded as before. Well, I counsels him to speak to Emily. He's big enough, but he's bashfuler than a little un, and he doesn't like, uh, so I speak. What? Him? says Emily. Him that I'd known so intimate so many years and liked so much. Oh, uncle, I never can have him. He's such a good fellow. I, I gives her a kiss, and I say no more to her than, my dear, you're, a, you're right to speak out. You're to choose for yourself. You're as free as a little bird. Then I always to him, and I says, I wish it could have been so, but it can't. But you, you can have both be as you, as you was, and what I say to you is, be as you was with her, like a man. He says to me, shaking my hand, I will, he says, and he was honorable and manful. For two years going on, and we just the same at home here as afore. Mr. Peggotty's face, which had varied in expression with the various stages of his narrative, now resumed all its former triumphant delight as he laid a hand upon my knee and a hand upon Steerforth's, previously wetting them both for the greater emphasis of the action. Wetting them? Like what, spitting on them? And dividing the following speech between us. All of a sudden, one evening, as it might be tonight, comes little Emily from her work and, and him with her. There ain't so much in that, you'll say. No, because he takes care on her, uh, like a brother, arter dark. What? And indeed, a four dark. And at all times, but this tarpaulin chap, ah, he takes hold of her hand and he cries out to me, joyful, look here, uh, this is to be my little wife. Well, that's a weird way of saying that. And she says, half bold and half shy, and half a laughing and half a crying, yes, uncle, if you please. If I please, cried Mr. Peggotty, rolling his head in an ecstasy at the idea of, Lord, as if I should do anything else. Oh, he's back to talking weird again. If you please, I am steadier now, and I have thought better of it, and I'll be as good a little wife as I can to him, for he's a dear, good fellow. Then Mrs. Gummidge, she claps her hands like a play, and you come in. There, the murder's out, said Mr. Peggotty. You come in. And it took place this here present hour. And here's the man that'll marry her the minute she's out of her time. Ham staggered, as well as he might, under the blow Mr. Te Mr. Peggotty dealt him with his unbounded joy. As a mark of confidence and friendship, 
Not feeling called upon to say something to us, he said, uh, with much faltering and great difficulty, She weren't no higher than you was, Master Davy, when you first come, when I thought uh, what she'd grow up to be. I see her grown-up gentleman like a flower. I'd lay down my life for her, Master Davy. Oh, oh, most content and cheerful. She's more to me, gentlemen, than she's all to me that ever I can want. And the more than I can ever, than I ever I could say. This is impossible to read. The structure is bizarre. I, dash, I love her true. There ain't a gentleman in all the land, nor yet sailing upon all the sea, that can love this lady more than, than I love her, though there's many a common man would say better what he meant. I thought it affecting to see such a sturdy fellow as Ham was now, trembling ooh, in the strength of what he felt for this pretty little creature who had won his heart. I thought the simple confidence reposed in us by Mr. Peggotty and by himself was in itself affecting. I was affected by the story altogether. How far my emotions were influenced by the recollections of my childhood, I don't know. Uh, whether I had come there with uh, any lingering fancy that I was still to love little Emily, I don't know. I know that I was filled with pre- pleasure by all this, but at first with an indescribably sensitive pleasure uh, that very little would have uh, changed to pain. Therefore, uh, if it had depended upon me to touch the prevailing chord among them with uh, any skill, I should have made a poor hand of it. But it depended upon Steerforth. And he did it with such address that in a few minutes we were all as easy and as happy as it was possible to be. Uh, Mr. Peggotty, he said, you are a thoroughly good fellow and deserve to be as happy as you are tonight. My hand upon it. Ham, give you joy, my boy. My hand upon that, too. Daisy, stir the fire Ooh, and make it a brisk one. Uh, 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 Mrs. Mr. Peggotty, unless you can introduce your gentle niece to come back, uh, for whom I vacate this seat in the corner, I shall go. Any gap at your fireside on such a night, such a gap, least of all, I wouldn't make for the wealth of the Indies. So Mr. Peggotty went into my old room to fetch little Emily. At first, little Emily didn't like to come, but then Ham went, and presently they brought her to the fireside, very much confused and, uh, ooh, very shy. But she soon became more assured when she found how gently and respectfully uh, Steerforth spoke to her, and how skillfully he avoided anything that would embarrass her, and how he talked to Mr. Peggotty of uh, boats and uh, uh, ships and uh, tides and fish. Oh, how he referred to me about the time when he had seen Mr. Peggotty at Salem House, how delighted he was with the boat and all belonging to it, how lightly and easily he carried on until he brought us by degrees into a charmed circle, and we were all talking away without any reserve. Emily, indeed, said little all the evening, but she looked, and, and she listened, and her face got animated, and she was, she was charming, Steerforth told a story of dismal uh, shipwreck, which rose out of his talk with Mr. Peggotty, as if he saw it all before him, and little Emily's eyes were fastened onto him all the time, as if she 
saw it too. Oh, and he told us a, a merry adventure of his own. As a relief to that, uh, with as much gaiety as if the narrative were as fresh to him as it was to us. And little Emily laughed until the boat rang with the musical sounds, and we all laughed, Steerforth too, in irresistible sympathy with what was so pleasant and light-hearted. He got uh, Mr. Peggy to sing, oh, weird, or rather to roar, uh, when the stormy winds do blow, do blow, do blow. And he sang a, a sailor song himself, so pathetically and beautifully that I could have almost fancied that the real wind creeping sorrowfully round the house and murmuring low through our unbroken silence was there to listen. As to uh, uh, Mrs. Gummidge, he roused that victim of despondency with a success never attained by anyone else. So, Mr. Peggotty informed me that since the decease of the old one, uh, he left her so little leisure for being miserable that she said the next day that she thought she must have been bewitched. But he uh, set up no monopoly of the general attention or the conversation. When little Emily grew more courageous and talked, but still bashfully across the fire to me, of our old wanderings upon the beach to pick up shells and eh, pebbles. And when I asked her if she recollected how I used to be devoted to her, and when we both laughed and, and reddened, casting these looks back on the pleasant old times, so unreal to look at now, he was silent and attentive and observed us thoughtfully. She sat at this time and all the evening on the old locker in her old little corner by the fire, ham beside her where I used to sit. I could not satisfy myself whether it was in her own little tormenting way or in a maidenly reserve before us that she kept quite close to the wall and, a, and away from him. But I observed that she did so all the evening. As I remember, it was almost midnight when we took our leave. We had some uh, biscuit and uh, uh, dried fish for supper. And Steerforth had produced from his pocket a full flask of Hollands, which we men, and I may say we men now without a blush, had emptied. Now we parted merrily, and as they all stood crowded round the door to light us as far as they could upon a road, I saw the sweet blue eyes of little Emily peeping after us from behind Ham and heard her soft voice calling to us to be careful how we went. A most engaging little beauty, said Steerforth, taking my arm. Well, it's a quaint place, uh, and they are a quaint company, and it's a, a quite a new sensation to mix with them. Uh, how fortunate we are, too, I returned, to have arrived to witness their happiness in that indeed marriage. I never saw people so uh, happy. How delightful to see it, and to be made the sharers in their honest joy, as we have been. That's a rather... "'Chuckle-headed fellow for the girl, isn't he?' said Steerforth. "'He had been so hearty with them, with, with all of them, "'that I felt a shock in this unexpected and cold reply. "'But turning quickly upon him and seeing a laugh in his eyes, "'I answered, much relieved, "'Ah, Steerforth, it is well for you to joke about the poor. "'You may skirmish with Miss Dartle "'or try to hide your sympathies and jest from me, "'but I, I know better. And "'When I see how perfectly you understand them, "'how exquisitely!' You can enter the happiness like a, like a plain fisherman's or, or humor a love like my old nurse's. I know that there is not any joy or sorrow, not an emotion of such people that can be indifferent to you. And I admire the love you for it, dear for twenty times and more. He stopped and looking in my face said, Daisy, ugh, I believe you are in earnest and are good. I wish we all were. 
next moment was gaily, he was gaily singing Mr. Peggotty's song as we walked at round pace back to Yarmouth. Well, now that we're back here in the smoking room, let's sit back for a second. Just, uh, I don't know, reminisce what happened in Chapter 21. David is still hung up on trying to look older. But it takes Steerforth's butler, Litmer, to, uh, to make him feel like a little boy again. Because he's so respectable. God knows we learned that. Uh, I mean, we really learned all about that. David decides to split up with Steerforth so he can go catch up with Peggotty. Uh, and then he stops over to the tailor shop and he sees that little Emily is uh, working there as a seamstress. And then weirdly gets all shy and uh, doesn't want to talk to her, even though he should, which makes you think, oh, he likes her. Plus, she's all beautiful now and stuff, and so maybe she's all intimidating and whatever. Then Steerforth shows up uh, and over at Peggy's house and charms the pants off of her and Mr. Barkus. And Mr. Barkus is deathly ill. Uh, then they take off to the boathouse and interrupt the news that Ham and Emily are going to get married. Uh, David doesn't let on at all that he's upset about it, so maybe the whole idea of uh, her being the one that he marries is uh, not really going to pan out. Steerforth again charms the pants off of everyone, uh, but then he finally plays his card. Uh, he shows that he's a jerk by saying that Emily is good-looking and that she shouldn't marry a knucklehead like Ham. Which, of course, David says, you couldn't possibly say something like that. I like you too much. And then Steerforth sings one of the boating songs and they skip off uh, into the night. What's good? Well, Emily's getting married. She's not just a, a vessel to sit around and wait for David to get ready. Uh, she's moved on with her life, so good for him. And uh, also... Uh, good for Ham that he actually uh, found someone to love him. A man with the name of a type of meat. What sucks? Now that David will never seem to catch on to what a jerk Steerforth is. Uh, and also, for me, whenever Ham talks, uh, it's almost impossible for me to read. I was just getting hung up and I hated every minute of it. So, as we sit back here in the smoking room, puffing away on our pipes, we can think about what we learned. Well, we learn that David is still weirdly self-conscious about being too young. He really wants to be considered a grown man. Uh, people seem to respect the heck out of him and love the heck out of him, but that's not good enough. He wants to be seen as a stately uh, 50-year-old. But so, when the butler comes around to just be respectable, uh, it makes him uh, feel all self-conscious. When uh, he really should just kind of give that up, Steerforth shows that he can be charming and likable. But really, he's just being manipulative because he literally doesn't think about anything uh, about these people. He just doesn't think of them as people at all. And we should never forget that there's a painting of Mrs. Dartle in a guest bedroom out there in the world. So with that, thanks for listening, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you uh, later on in the week. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the 
part of the podcast I hate the most, where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. You can tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people, not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read, uh, along with episodes from the Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a House Nuzzle. So you got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.Nuzzles at gmail.com. But don't, uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork. Now, back to business. I can't believe I drank all of them already. There's got to be one left. 